We continue our study of Ezekiel. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel chapter 5. And I think you will see as we read this chapter how we need the precious Jesus. Ezekiel chapter 5. encourage you to keep it open as we make our way through this chapter. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. You shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city, when the days of the siege are finished. Then you shall take one-third and strike around it with the sword, and one-third you shall scatter in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. You shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there, a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments and they have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, indeed I, even I, am against you and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And I'll do among you what I have never done and the like of which I will never do again because of all your abominations. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments among you, and all of you who remain I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. One-third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. And one-third shall fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to all the winds. And I will draw out a sword after them. Thus shall my anger be spent. And I will cause my fury to rest upon them. And I will be avenged. And they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you in the sight of all who pass by. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you when I execute judgments among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you. I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine 
and wild beasts, and they will bereave you. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Suppose your church was vacant and you were on the calling committee to seek a new pastor. It was your job to interview a certain person and come back to the elders with a report. So you do your work and then you meet with the elders. They ask you, well, what do you think? Would he be a good man for this church? You say, I'm not so sure. He's a rather unusual man. What do you mean, an unusual man? Well, he makes models, stares at an iron plate, lays on his side a lot, barely survives on a starvation diet, has been known to hack off his hair with a sword, and says many terrible things about his audience. To be honest, I think he's a bit of an odd duck. Sometimes his behavior is very strange. I suspect he may have some mental health issues. Probably wouldn't fit very well in our church. I'm afraid over time his preaching would empty our building. People will be turned off. We're probably better off looking at the next man on our list. Congregation, would you recommend calling Ezekiel to be your pastor? Would you say, this is exactly what we need? In Ezekiel 4, we saw the prophet's first assignment. Having received a call to the prophetic office, the Lord gave him a specific task which would span the course of 430 days, a year and two months. The Lord told him to act out a prophecy. Ezekiel had to build a model of Jerusalem, and around the model, he had to make a siege wall, a siege mound, and set camps against it with battering rams all around. He had to make ramps at the outer walls of the city and equipment to pound the city walls. The model of Jerusalem represented God's coming judgment upon Judah's capital. Within the course of six years, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar would march against Jerusalem and after a lengthy siege, the city and temple would be utterly destroyed. Then the Lord also told Ezekiel that he had to set up an iron plate between himself and the model of Jerusalem. And he had to set his face against it. The iron plate symbolized, represented an impenetrable barrier between Jerusalem and the Lord. Ezekiel's face represented the face of God. God's face was set against his people. Instead of his face shining upon them in blessing, it was set against them in wrath. The iron plate symbolized God's covenant curse, Deuteronomy 31, 17. God's face was steadfastly set against Jerusalem, and instead of fellowship, there was separation of God's favor from the holy city. In addition to this, The Lord also told Ezekiel that he had to lie on his side for 390, his left side for 390 days, and on his right side for 40 days. This also symbolized the judgment of the Lord that rested on Israel and Judah. Over a period of 14 months, 
All who passed by Ezekiel lying on his side were reminded of the weight of God's judgment upon Israel and Judah. Moreover, the Lord also instructed Ezekiel as to what he could eat during this 14-month period. He was only allowed a cup, eight ounces of food per day, and two cups, 16 ounces of water. It was barely enough to survive on. Ezekiel's diet symbolized the result of the coming siege of Jerusalem. When the armies of Nebuchadnezzar would stand against Jerusalem, the food supplies would run out, resulting in terrible suffering for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why was the Lord going to cut off the supply of bread and water? Well, we saw last week, it was because Israel had rejected the bread of life and the living water. The famine that Ezekiel predicted for the city of Jerusalem was due to the fact that Israel had rejected God's spiritual provision. By turning to other gods, they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life and the living water. Well, now today, as we come to the fifth chapter, we see another enactment prophecy that Ezekiel is called to perform. Through this acted-out prophecy, the people in captivity by the river Chebar were called to consider the sharp sword of the Lord that was coming upon Jerusalem. The sharp sword of the Lord. I want us to reflect upon God's peculiar instructions to Ezekiel in verses 1 through 4 and God's powerful message through Ezekiel in verses 5 to 17. We begin with peculiar instructions. After 430 days of lying on his side by the model of Jerusalem, the Lord once again spoke to Ezekiel and gave him further instructions. Let's look together at our Bibles to verse 1. Verse 1. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, Take it as a barber's razor and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. In public view, the prophet had to shave off his hair and beard using a sword as a razor. If the people who had been observing him for the past 14 months thought that he had lost his mind, this haircut no doubt confirmed their suspicions. What's this oddball doing now? What's he trying to prove? Why on earth is he shaving himself bald? Now, congregation, you need to understand that this was more than just an unusual haircut. Listen to what's written in Leviticus 19, verse 27. You shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. The Old Testament law did not permit Israelite men to shave or disfigure their beard. And this was especially so for the priests. Leviticus 21 verse 5 says, They shall not make any bald place on their heads, nor shall they shave the edges of their beards. You'll recall from chapter 1 and verse 3 that Ezekiel was a priest. He was raised in a priestly family. And therefore for Ezekiel, this was not just a haircut. Cutting off his hair and beard using an instrument of war was a sign of severe and humiliating judgment. 
There are, as you probably know, maybe your mind's gone there already, there are some passages in the Old Testament where the shaving of the beard is a matter of great shame. You remember the story in 2 Samuel chapter 10 when David sent messengers to Hanan, king of Ammon. Hanan took the messengers and shaved off half of their beards. And we read that the men were greatly ashamed, greatly ashamed. David told them to wait at Jericho until their beards had grown. Then they could return. Shaving the beard was a matter of great shame. We find this also in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 20, where the prophet said, The Lord will shave with a hired razor, with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head, and will also remove the beard. Again, removing the hair and the beard was a matter of great shame. And so Ezekiel was told to do something that was, first of all, very unusual for a priest, and secondly, it included personal humiliation. Then, having cut off his hair and his beard, Ezekiel had to collect it all and carefully weigh the hair and divide it. He had to divide it into three equal heaps. Verse 2 tells us what he had to do with those three piles of hair. Go to verse 2. The Lord said, you shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are finished. Then you shall take one-third and strike around it with a sword, and one-third you shall scatter in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. You shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment, your robe. Now, congregation, just picture this in your mind, Okay. Here was a man who was weak and thin from living 14 months on a starvation diet. Perhaps he was stiff and physically out of shape from such a lengthy period of inactivity, 430 days of lying on his side. His face and head must have been a mess from shaving with such an awkward blade. I mean, some of us men have a hard enough time shaving with a good quality Gillette razor. We can hardly imagine what it must have been like to hack your hair and beard off with a sword, a weapon of war. So Ezekiel's face and head were a mess. He was thin and weak from starvation rations. And now he has to take a balance, weigh out his hair into three equal heaps, burn one pile with fire, chop up the second pile with a sword, and toss the third pile into the air to be carried away by the wind. Then he had to retrieve a few of the hairs and tuck them into the fold of his garment, his robe. Some of those hairs tucked into the edge of his garment, he had to once again take out and throw them into the fire. Only a few strands of hair were preserved in the prophet's clothing. All the rest was either burned, cut up with the sword, or scattered to the wind. These were God's peculiar instructions to Ezekiel. Imagine, brothers and sisters, how the people must have responded. Here was a totally bald priest swinging a sword around, chopping up and burning his hair. How the people must have laughed at his bizarre behavior. His strange activity was surely the talk of the community, and there were very, very few who took him seriously. 
His willingness to obey God's instruction shows how faithful he was. He was not intimidated by the mockery of the people. He knew that obedience to God was most important. That is something we all need to remember. Obedience to God is most important. You and I are not called to shave ourselves bald with a sword, thankfully. We're not called to chop up and burn our hair, but we are called to live in obedience to God's Word. And congregation, that in itself is enough to invite mockery and ridicule from many. When you obey God's law, when you do what He calls you to do, when you live by His commandments, when you live a committed life before the Lord God and before the world, you will undoubtedly be considered somewhat odd and unusual. Nevertheless, by God's grace, we are to be faithful, doing what God calls us to do, even if it means that we will be ridiculed by some people. Obedience to God is most important. Now, secondly, having considered briefly God's peculiar instructions to Ezekiel, we want to move on to his powerful message through Ezekiel. His powerful message through Ezekiel. What did all this strange symbolism mean? What was God communicating to the captives by the river Chebar? We're not left to guess or to speculate, for the text itself gives us the meaning. To begin with, Ezekiel's hair represents the population of Jerusalem. It represents all those who inhabit the city of Jerusalem at the time of the coming siege. The three piles of hair represent the various ways that the inhabitants of the city would be treated. Look down for just a moment to verse 12. One third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. And one third shall fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to all the winds. And I will draw out a sword, unsheath the sword after them. The pile of hair that was burned symbolized those who would die of disease and famine during and after the siege. Perhaps the heat of the fire symbolized fever that often accompanies disease. The pile of hair that was chopped up with the sword symbolized those who would be killed by the sword of the Babylonian soldiers. The pile of hair that was thrown to the wind and scattered symbolized those who would be exiled. The hairs that were tucked into the fold of Ezekiel's garment symbolized the few survivors who would remain in Jerusalem. Some of them would die of famine, some of them would be killed by wild beasts, and some of them would be killed by pestilence and sword. The total picture, therefore, is one of terrible, dreadful, unimaginable judgment. Disaster is coming upon Jerusalem, the likes of which it has never seen before. The sharp sword that Ezekiel used to cut off his hair represented not only the sword of Babylon, but it represented what? The sharp sword. Sword of the Lord. Keep your bookmark in at Ezekiel 5 and turn back with me for a moment to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. 
Deuteronomy 32 is referred to as the Song of Moses. It is a song that Moses wrote shortly before his death. In verse 14 of Deuteronomy 31, the Lord told Moses that he was soon going to die and that Joshua was going to be appointed as his successor. In verse 16 of Deuteronomy 31, the Lord told Moses that after he rested with his fathers, the people of Israel would play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land. Israel was going to forsake the Lord and break his covenant. God told Moses that he had to write a song and teach it to the children of Israel so that it would serve as a witness against them. This song will testify against them as a witness, chapter 31, verse 21. The song itself, recorded in Deuteronomy 32, predicted the apostasy of Israel. Look at verse 5 of Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Now go down to verse 15. Verse 15. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat. You grew thick. You are a beast. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. Verse 16. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Now hold it open there for just a moment. Remember, congregation, this song of Moses is all prophetic, right? Moses was prophesying about the future of the nation of Israel. He said that they would reject the rock of their salvation. And how would God respond to their apostasy, their breaking of the covenant? Look down to verse 41. Here we see the sword of the Lord. Verse 41. If I wet or sharpen my glittering sword, and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives. See, Moses talked about God's glittering or flashing sword of judgment. It is a sharp sword, a devouring sword, a sword of vengeance. God responds to Israel apostasy by bringing down his sharp, glittering, flashing sword. This is what Ezekiel's sharp sword represented. Go back to Ezekiel 5. As the prophet cut off his hair and beard with a sharp sword, so the Lord would cut off the inhabitants of Jerusalem with his flashing sword. Ezekiel's baldness symbolized the empty, bare city of Jerusalem. The sharp sword of the Lord was against them. In verses 5 through 8 of Ezekiel 5, the Lord explains the reason for his anger. Jerusalem had been given a place of unique privilege. Verse 5 says, have a look there, I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. See, Jerusalem was the center of the nations. 
It was in Jerusalem that God's presence was revealed. It was in Jerusalem that God's temple was built. It was in Jerusalem that the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was in Jerusalem that the sacrifice for sin was made. Jerusalem was to be a light to the nations, a holy city, a light to the Gentiles, a place of righteousness. But Jerusalem failed miserably. They neglected to appreciate their unique privilege. Verse 6 tells us that she rebelled against God's judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations. She rebelled against God's statutes more than the countries that were all around her. Tragically, Jerusalem was more wicked than her pagan, non-believing neighbors. The church was more wicked than the world. Therefore, the Lord said to them, verse 8, have a look. Solemn words. Indeed, I, even I, am against you and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. Dear friends, these are terrible words. I, even I, am against you. They're some of the most horrifying words that you can find in the Bible. I, even I, am against you. Congregation as a church of Jesus Christ, we need to take heed to the message of this chapter. As Jerusalem was to be a light to the nations, so you are called to be a light to the world. As Jerusalem was to be a place of righteousness, so you are to be a people characterized by righteousness. The Apostle Peter refers to the church as a holy nation. As Jerusalem was given a place of unique privilege, so you, as members of Christ's church, are given a place of unique privilege, and to whom much is given, much will be required. Jerusalem was the place of God's temple, but you, both individually and corporately, are called the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Lord wants your light to shine in this world. He wants your holy conduct to be noticed by others. He wants your godliness to far exceed that of your unbelieving neighbors. He wants your righteousness to be noticed by those who do not know Christ. If you fail in your responsibility, as Jerusalem failed, if you rebel against his judgments and statutes as Jerusalem rebelled, if you neglect to maintain a clear distinction between you and the world as Jerusalem did, or if your wickedness exceeds that of your non-believing neighbors, then the Lord will say to you, I, even, even I, am against you. Brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? That is a wonderful and comforting truth. If God be for us, who could be against us? But think about this. If God is against us, who can be for us? I, even I, am against you. What hope do you have? 
When the church today fails to appreciate her unique privilege and departs from the Word of God, the consequences are dreadful. How many churches today have embraced evolutionary theories? Some of our unbelieving neighbors no longer accept the theory of evolution. There are some unbelieving scientists who've thrown it out. How many churches today are condoning common law relationships? Some of our unbelieving neighbors find it unacceptable and morally offensive. How many churches today are putting their stamp of approval on so-called same-sex marriage and lifestyles that are condemned by Scripture, even allowing unrepentant homosexuals to the Lord's table or to serve as elders and pastors? Even some of our unbelieving neighbors do not approve of homosexuality or same-sex marriages. How many churches today are putting their stamp of approval on abortion? Some of our unbelieving neighbors do not approve of abortion. How many churches today are approving euthanasia? Some of our unbelieving neighbors are opposed to euthanasia. How many churches have embraced a feminist agenda? Well, some of our unbelieving neighbors are fed up with it. And let's bring this a little closer to home, shall we? Sometimes in conservative reform circles, we see drunkenness and improper entertainment at weddings or inappropriate language and conduct in the workplace. Congregation, how can the church be a light to the world if our standard of righteousness is inferior to that of our unbelieving neighbors? God said to Israel, you have rebelled against my statutes more than the nations around you. You have multiplied disobedience more than the nations. Therefore, I, even I, am against you. If the church is no longer a light to the world, if her conduct is no different than that of her unbelieving neighbors, there comes a time when God's patience runs out. Read what he says to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. The risen Lord said to the church in Pergamos, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. If they did not repent, the sharp sword of the Lord would be against them. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus gave his life for the church. He loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, have not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Christ died that he might save his people from corruption and unrighteousness. To ignore the word and to live in sin is to slap him in the face, as it were. It is saying, I have no need of the gospel of Christ and his saving work. I have no need of his sacrifice for sin. When the church is no longer God's beacon in this world, it is because we have lost our love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So congregation, I ask you here this afternoon, do you love the gospel of Christ? It's the message of salvation by grace precious to you. Do you understand what a privilege it is to be a child of God and a part of his church? In Ezekiel's day, Jerusalem had lost sight of this privilege. The message of salvation by grace alone was not a subject of great interest. Redemption through the promised Messiah was not foremost in their minds. They did not take great pleasure in it. Because of their carelessness, the Lord said, I am against you. The sharp sword of the Lord is against you. Notice the terrible suffering that God was going to send upon the city of Jerusalem. Look with me in your Bibles to verse 9. And I will do among you what I have never done, and the like of which I will never do again because of all your abominations. Verse 10, brace yourself. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers. Drop to verse 14. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you. Verse 16, I will send terrible arrows of famine. I will cut off your supply of bread. Verse 17, I will send against you famine and wild beasts, pestilence and blood, and I will bring the sword against you. Congregation, all these terrible miseries were predicted by God in the books of Moses. Leviticus and Deuteronomy in particular contain portions in which the curses of the covenant are set forth. Those who violated the covenant could expect famine, wild beasts, disease, bloodshed, as well as cannibalism. Please turn back with me once again to Deuteronomy, this time to chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28, I want to read several verses to you. The warnings in this chapter are clear, powerful, and frightening. The whole chapter is pertinent, but I want to draw your attention specifically to chapter uh, to verses 53 to 59. 53 to 59. Deuteronomy 28, 53. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. 54, the sensitive and very refined man among you will be hostile toward his brother, toward the wife of his bosom, and toward the rest of his children whom he leaves behind so that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children whom he will eat because he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. 56, the tender and delicate woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and sensitivity will refuse to the husband of her bosom and to her son and her daughter her placenta which comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears for she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. Brothers and sisters, does that take your breath away? Does that take your breath away? 
What a horrible, horrible curse for those who violated God's covenant. These words are beyond comprehension. You might call them a foretaste of hell. Utter misery, suffering, and distress. How can a man eat his sons and daughters? How can a delicate woman eat her placenta and the children whom she bears? And yet these very words were fulfilled when the Babylonians laid siege against Jerusalem. Fathers and mothers ate their children out of utter desperation. Ezekiel's prophecy only reiterated what the Lord had stated years earlier through Moses. If you depart from me, and if you fail to be a light to the nations, you will come under my curse. Congregation, doesn't the Lord say the same thing to the church today? If you depart from me, if you fail to be a light to the nations, if you do not value my salvation, the message of the cross, if you do not treasure my grace and love, you will come under my curse. The curses of the covenant in Deuteronomy 28 The curses that Ezekiel predicted would come upon Jerusalem are reminders of what will happen to sinners in eternity. Unbelieving, unrepentant people will be eternally cursed. The judge will say to them, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire. And so I call you again today to live by the word to trust the grace that is found in Christ Jesus, to let your light shine, and to display God's holy character before the world. I call you to live by faith in the Son of God, to demonstrate your love for Him, to depart from evil, and to hold fast to what is righteous. Jerusalem did not have to experience God's curse. If they only believed, if they only embraced the gospel and trusted God's promised Messiah, they would have been richly blessed. But they foolishly chose the way of death. Is there anyone here this afternoon who's doing the same thing? Choosing the way of death? Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you life. I have taken the curse upon myself so that you may live and know God's blessing. I was cursed so that you may be blessed. May each one of us here today trust, love, and worship that wonderful, sin-bearing, curse-bearing Savior. Love Him. Live for Him. Let your light shine in this world. Let us pray.
Lord, some of these words truly do take our breath away. We think of your solemn warnings, the solemn judgment against your people. Lord, our hearts are also by nature full of wickedness. We gravitate towards that which is contrary to your will. Those things that appeal to the flesh. We seek your forgiveness. We pray that we truly will be a light to the nations. Help us in the workplace. Help us, Lord, to let our light shine in the way we conduct ourselves, the things of which we speak, the things that are precious to us, the way we respond to calamity and difficulty. That, Lord, we may truly be faithful representatives, not only by the words we speak, but by the life that we live. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us in that. We think of those terrible words, I, even I, am against you. And, oh, Lord, if you are against us, who could be for us? So we desire, Lord, to show our gratitude for that sin-bearing, curse-bearing Savior. To live in such a way that uh, we show who our Master is, who our Savior is. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking the curse upon yourself that we may be rescued. You give us through some of these passages a, a foretaste of hell, utter misery, confusion, chaos, unimaginable brokenness and horror. Oh Lord, we thank you that Jesus endured our hell so that we may enter heaven. Receive our songs as we conclude this service and also encourage us through the presentation that we may truly be people who are concerned about being a light to the nations. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.